0: Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability for the long haul. Who are we? Where are we going? Where did we come from? How do they get those out of order? Swiftly just falling down the stack of asking weird questions. Really excited to have another guest here today at State of Open. This is, again, the first conference of its type here in the UK, focusing on... UK Open Everything. And our guest is actually one we've had on the podcast before. I say we, of course, it's just me, Richard, and I'm not royalty, but whatever. Colin Eberhardt. Colin, you do a lot of interesting things. So you are happen a member of Finos, yep. and you're generally and genuinely interested in supporting open source financially and figuring out how to make the incentives align. Yes.
1: Supporting open source financially, I think less so. Not because I don't think it for it. There's a lot of attention on financial support, which there should be. I don't think there's enough attention on other aspects of supporting open source. So mm-hmm. I think there's an imbalance. So financial, yes. Open Collective, tide lift, the sponsorship, Linux Foundation, all the organizations putting money in. Great. Totally encourage that. But
0: we need more than that. And just to... Refresh my context and the context of our listeners, you work at a consultancy. Yeah, software consultancy. So yeah,
1: we are part of the community that does a lot of taking. We <laughs> build a lot of great applications for our clients. And a lot of it, as you'd expect, uses open source yep. software.
0: And that's the way the world is at the moment. So I do want to get back to how do you support open source projects? So I know this is something you talked about yesterday at some of the sustained sessions which are upstairs in our separate room, which is pretty cool. But I did have another question first for you, which is what are you getting out of State of the Open? Why are you here? How's it going for you?
1: I'm really enjoying it. I'm impressed at the scale of the event. To the best of my knowledge, we haven't had any events in the UK which have been focused on or dedicated to open source before. So I'm quite impressed that they've pulled off an event of this size straight out of the blocks. I'm ambitious, but I'd have gone for something smaller in the first round, <laughs> so to come in and see, okay, QE2, I've been here before for events like QCon, which is massive. Yep. So lots of respects to them for having pulled off an event of this scale. That's, that's really cool. And I really hope it's here stay because I think it's an important topic to be discussing.
0: We've had open source events in the UK before, and there are open source bodies focusing on open mm. data. Software Sustainability Institute comes directly to mine up in Edinburgh, and there's other sorts of things before. Joss is run by a Brit. I've been to JSConf all over. Tons of JavaScript things. CubeGon. Ah, yes. Of course, but never like overarching open banner, all welcome events.
1: Yeah, exactly. Things like JS JSConf, I love the way that they run their conferences. Yeah. And franchise is probably the wrong word to use because that implies that it's financial. No, but it's it's pretty similar. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fantastic. But that is focused on the technology. It's focused on JavaScript, which happens to be open source and they run it in a fashion which I think people in open source respect the way that they run it, but it's not focused on open source in general. So I think it's really great to get a, a big conference focused specifically on open source.
0: You mentioned the QE2, that's Queen Elizabeth's 2 Conference Center, which is directly across from Westminster. There are peregrine falcons on that roof. That's all I'm going to say. Had a good time. Yeah, yeah. What has been your main takeaway so far besides, wow, they really put this up pretty quickly. Have you had any talks you particularly enjoyed? Are you giving a session yourself?
1: I did a talk yesterday, and one of the things that I find as a speaker is I find it hard to concentrate until I've done my talk. uh, (laughs) That's fair. So I'm always happy if I'm on fairly early in an event, not because I think that makes me any more important. It's more that I can concentrate on other things. So I sat through a couple of talks yesterday and I must admit, I got halfway through them and thought, I'm not listening because I'm thinking about what I'm going to talk about in a couple of hours time. So yesterday was mostly... The build up to the talk, which was mostly thinking about my talk, delivering my talk, and then relaxing, which is why I came to this sort of sustained unconference because I just wanted to go into a, an environment where you just have a bit of a chat rather than listen. I'm sometimes finding myself to be not a terribly good listener. I much prefer talking and interacting in the workshop style environment. I find that engages me more than sitting and listening. Although, having said that, I often Pick topics I'm interested in, yep. and what happens is maybe fifty percent I'll already know about, and then yeah. my mind goes off in a tangent. I thought this morning I'm going to go to a talk about a topic I know nothing about. Always fun, which was confidential computing, which meant in the first five minutes he was talking about things I've never heard of. Cool, which was great <laughs> because I concentrated and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, what is confidential computing? It's an interesting concept. I'm wondering whether we're going to get a log 4 J style moment there. So with confidential computing. It's the idea that at the moment we're shifting all of our workloads onto the cloud with free abandon effectively. And we're not really asking ourselves the question, do we trust the execution environment that it's running with it? We trust Amazon and we've got a contract with them, but do we trust the virtualization environments? Do we trust the hardware? Once you start breaking it down, there are a lot of parties that you fundamentally need to be trusting. To fully trust the environment that almost everyone is committing to now, and the idea with confidential computing is to secure it pretty much at the CPU level. So for most of these things, whether it's your database, your network, the thing that we lean on is encryption, and that's great. You can encrypt your data in transit, you can encrypt it in situ. But as soon as you start doing something with it, you have to unencrypt it. So probably the the area that you pay most attention to is the CPU or the virtualization environments. And there isn't a good solution to that at the moment. So with confidential computing, it's the idea of having CPUs that have built-in encrypt and decrypt to say they cage data in and out of memory. And then the really interesting thing, which I knew nothing about was, how do you trust that you're being given a confidential computing environment. Because someone could just say, oh, it's confidential. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And it's not. So there's just as much interesting engineering and innovation around how you ensure that you are actually being genuinely being given a confidential environment. I knew nothing of that. It was really interesting. So that was, yeah, that was a good choice. I think I'm going to do that next. So I'm just going to go and find something that I know nothing about because that pulls my attention. because That's a fair um, point. You probably have a similar problem to me that your mind goes off in too many tangents too quickly. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're going to you're, you're think about confidential computing for the next 15 minutes, aren't
0: you? Yeah, well, it reminds me of a lot of conversations I've had with white hat hackers whose job it is by banks to go and figure out how to hack them. And sometimes just going into the CPU is an easier way of doing it. I
1: um, must admit, one question I didn't ask at the end is I'm thinking, so... We've got these CPUs, but what about the tiny attacks, Spectre? That yeah, sort of thing. How sure are they that these chips cannot be attacked in the same way that chips have been attacked? It's had you know, they've fallen foul to some pretty nasty attacks quite recently.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question for open source too, because open source things is like, well, it's all open there. It is but every open source project also depends on proprietary things. At some point, the person who's a maintainer has keys and proprietary setup. Mm. It has to run often in a proprietary environment, not including various ground up Linux boxes, which can be fine. But then they also run on a grid, which is often nationalized. Um, yeah. Or, you know, non-nationalized works. So it's... It, again, know. which is why encryption is your
1: friend. Yeah, It keeps you safe. But I'd not really thought about that before. The only place you cannot have your data encrypted is in the cpu it has to see the data to yep. do the work that it needs to do that was the kind of the eureka moment for me now i understand what this small group of people keep going on about and i yep. do wonder whether there will be the i said maybe log4j moment it's not the right well the moment already
0: thing. happened so the moment was like Snowden, dread right? the moment was signal the moment was saying actually there are massive securities all through the stack that you don't think about the national yeah. governments do think about and you're being tracked and you things being analyzed. So this is one of the reasons why Signal exists. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah. You know, which is open source. But it's open source, not because it's a useful mechanism for actually collaborating on it necessarily, but because it's easier for people to trust the system itself. Yeah. That it is working. Well, the other interesting things I've
1: heard this morning, Jimmy's talk about Wikipedia. Was, Jimmy Wales, yep. Yeah, that was fantastic. And the way I look at it, 20 years ago, I think, most people thought open source wouldn't work. Reading yep. the Cathedral of the Bazaar and some of the early stuff from yeah, uh, GNU, that sort of era, right. there was a general feeling that this model of scaling out wouldn't work fundamentally. And it was also similar with Wikipedia in the beginning. It was. Most yeah. people thought that it would eventually fail. Due to maintenance issues or issues relating to malicious actors, open source at scale shouldn't work. Wikipedia at scale shouldn't work. And I think that it's really interesting to look at the parallels
0: between the two. Yeah. I teach Latin on the side. And it's been really funny teaching Latin because when I was a student, it was like, well, let's go to the back of the book. And now I'm like, well, we don't know that verb form. Let's just go to Wiktionary because it's a readily available resource that works really well that has all the information we need. And while we should memorize it, in this exact moment, we need to look it up. And that's just the best place to do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So The the whole notion that we've built up so much fantastic knowledge entirely for free, when you take a step back, that almost makes no sense. But it's exactly the same with open source that for most people... 80, 90% 90 percent of their stack is open source, and people go are not familiar with it. If you go through the stack and say, "Oh yeah, that was all free," people go, "Why? Who did that? Who, who was paying them to do that? No, no one's getting paid for that. I don't get it." There's yeah. a lot of people simply don't get it, and I guess Wikipedia is almost a much more visible sort of representation about. I think it comes down to. People wanting to create something and having pride in their creation. I think that's a lot of what motivates people to spend a lot of time creating pages on Wikipedia. It's not for the fame. It's for the joy of creating something. And for a lot of people in open source, that's what motivates them. There's a lot of people that can't write code. So maybe they can research and write things on Wikipedia. I only spent a small amount of time contributing to Wikipedia. Maybe I spent a period of doing it for about a year, maybe 15 years ago, there were a few, it was, it was the niches. It was pages about juggling famous jugglers and microscopy techniques. You know, we all have (laughs) our weird (laughs) niches. But again, at that point, there were things that I knew about and I cared about that just weren't terribly well represented. For me, it was such great pride when a page I created around a guy called Enrico Restelli, yep. who was one of the most inventive and creative jugglers in the world, became a featured page on Wikipedia. That was <laughs> so
0: cool. Good to, to have done that. The Horse Caller article was the one I contributed, and I'm just really glad that exists because yeah. without the Horse Caller, we wouldn't have had agricultural communities that were able to have a market town and which, you know, wouldn't have led to the civilization we know today. Yeah. So thank you, Horse Caller, for leading to the climate crisis.
1: But again, we do it for, part of it is, I think fun's perhaps the wrong word. I think a lot of it is pride in creating something. I think Yeah, exercising it's, humanity's plastic genius, right? Yeah, so yeah exactly. He, we have creativity built in. Yep. And I think that's what motivates people to do, to create in Wikipedia and open source.
0: That was another thing that, was, that came up in my head during this conversation was, Chimps are smarter than humans at a lot of things, Mm. like just straight out. They can sabotage better than we can. We can only really count to groups of four. They can do like six or seven immediately. Mm, They're faster at all sorts of reflexes that we just don't have anymore. But a chimps longest sentence was banana me, give banana me, 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 banana, banana, give me. Right. It's like they don't understand reciprocity. They don't understand tit for tat the same way we do. They don't have these altruistic games that they play where, hey, maybe I'll just do this for fun and other people will enjoy it and that's great and maybe I can collaborate with other people. And so for me, open source is a natural extension of one of the things that separates humanity from a lot of other primates Mm -hmm. is that we're very good at saying, you know what, this is labor intensive and I'm not going to ask for labor back. I may ask for fame, for shout outs, for thanks. I may ask for a feeling of connection, which I'm not going to be able to judge in any really quantifiable way. But for the most part, what I'm interested in doing is doing this thing and then giving it out there. And I love that. And we talk about it being free in terms of capital, but capital isn't the only currency. No. So I think open source isn't necessarily free because every time you use it, you're saying, I trust this person enough to have to try their code in my code base. And I'm glad for all the contributors that have done this thing. Even if you don't go out and say, thank you, you're doing that in your head by saying, sweet. Don't have to write that function. Yeah, to do. Yeah. And just to randomly off topic. It's okay. This is, it's a pretty off topic. We're fine.
1: This is why it really annoys me when I see people citing the claim that chat GPT is likely going to be the end of software engineering in the very near future. Yeah, the newspapers are going to destroy yeah. how we understand books.
0: I think people who
1: make that statement have really no idea about how software works and how open source works and the amount of creativity, genuine creativity that goes into creating this stuff is that's something that you cannot replicate with an algorithm yet. And I'm not sure you ever will. Yes, it will have an impact, positive impact. I'm sure it's not going to replace it.
0: It's also not going to replace the simple things every organism needs to do. You can have a perfect way of building a well, but if I need one in my backyard, I'm going to have to figure out how to do that there. Until we have all powerful rings that we can wave to make the universe act the way we want it to, and to do that in a way that doesn't interfere with other people's wishes, which is going to be very hard. i see a home for computing and for open source in the future. So I'm not worried about that either. The other thing that's cropped up a few times in this conference, which
1: I must admit I'm terrible. I find myself disagreeing with a lot of things. I hope I don't do it in a negative
0: fashion. I don't. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) But there's a few times I've heard open source described as public good and one of the things with the public... Oh, I just joined the DPG Alliance three days
1: ago. Yeah. It's non-rivalrous. So that operates from the principle that it's digital and it's zero cost to replicate, which is entirely true. The cost of replication is virtually zero. So generally speaking, that means people think there's no rivalry
0: over the good itself. Yeah, but OSI has a social impact and the fact that it can't be easily duplicated, so that's confusing to me.
1: Yeah, I think every time you look at things where it's gone horribly wrong, things like Log4J, people burning out, it's quite obvious to me that it is rivalrous. And one resource that we continually deplete is the people that are actually writing the open source software in the first place. We were talking about burnout the other day. One great way to make sure you don't get burnt out is to make sure you don't ever become successful. <laughs>
0: She's kind of counting. This was yesterday at the sustained session, and I, I didn't see a don't become good sticky on the wall, but we maybe she go out. Yeah.
1: Generally speaking, the people that are burnt out are the ones that have become tremendously popular, successful, and then because of the rivalrous nature. Those are different things. Those
0: yeah. are different things. Like Tim Ferriss is on record as saying, I'd rather be rich than famous. Which is a really good point. Would you rather just just have some money and live in the blue hills in a nice house and not have anyone know you and make an impact on the world? Or would you rather be, oh, God, I can't go to this coffee shop without wearing a mask again? Yeah, that's a good quote. I get where it's coming from. Yeah, and it's something like that with open source. Would I rather be a large, charismatic project that has funding or would I rather be a low-level project that doesn't have a lot of funding but is incredibly useful for the world? Hopefully, we can find a world where there's a balance between both of those. Where you can both get recognition and remuneration for your labor, as well as being able to sit back and not take on extra responsibility and hassle for doing so. Yeah. And again, this almost gets around to the
1: topic of the talk that I did, which was looking at the role, the potentially positive role public sector could have on open source. Yeah. We have a general expectation on the governments to protect either our public goods or our common goods to protect the environment and. There's an expectation that they should be protecting our digital commons and there's almost every country within Europe and the UK, God bless us for no longer being in Europe, every country has political and legal legislation around open source and it's well-meaning. However, I did some research work with the Linux Foundation Research and we found that the engineering teams on the ground are operating in a bit of a void. You ask them about their ability to contribute, their ability to consume. And the vast majority of them are responding with, there's no clear policy, because there's the intention through political, legal, thou shalt use open source. But we know that's actually quite complicated. There are lots of things that you need to consider, security, maintainability, all sorts of technical things. Do you give people access to GitHub, The things like legal compliance. There's a whole load of things that have to happen on the grounds to actually make that work. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, it looks like within the public sector, they don't have the support that they need to do that. But again, I don't think that's a negative. I think that's an opportunity. If we honestly believe it's a public good or a common good, that it should be protected. If we believe the government should be part of that, if we believe that public sector should really be capitalising on open source, then we should also be expecting that they're protecting and helping open source because they've got a different dynamic to private companies. They're not in competition with anyone else. They have fundamentally different motives in what they're doing. So I do think the more we can do to help people within public sector become better at using open source technology and then contributing back, I think that could be a a significant contributing factor. So I know we talked a little bit about Money, But I think this is a great way to get the sort of roll your sleeves
0: up kind of contribution that I think it needs. Colin, we are running up on time. Thank you so much. You're obviously very knowledgeable. This has been a very fun free conversation for me. Where can
1: people read more of your words on the interweb I'm lucky enough to have a relatively unusual surname. So if you Google Colin Eberhardt, you'll find my blog, Twitter, which I don't
0: post on much these days. And I believe that's E-B-E-R-H-A-R-D-T. Yep, that's right. Excellent. So that's Colin 1L. Yes, 1L. Good old British Colin. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. It's been really great. And I hope you have fun with the rest of the conference cool. and continue to help thinking about ways to sustain open source. Cool. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Can I get some more sleep, please? How much sleep can I get? Really great to be joined here today by a fantastic guest and longtime contributor to Sustain, Errol Fox. Errol Fox is one of my co-hosts on the Sustainable Open Source Design podcast, SOSD, which is focused about the design and all things there. Errol is, of course, now working at Superbloom, previously Simply Secure. Very exciting to hear about your branding change. and. Errol has been helping to run the Sustained conference room upstairs. So I'm very excited to actually get to talk to them because I haven't been able to this basically entire time. So Errol, tell me about the sessions which mm. I missed yesterday, which were on Sustaining Open Source at the Sustained conference here at State of Hope.
2: Yeah, sure. This um,
0: morning was financial stuff in the, first, the yeah. first session, right?
2: Yeah, so that one was a very busy session. I think if you put Financial related topics around open source, you're always going to get a high turnout for people wanting to talk about those kinds of challenges. From my perspective, I think I was mostly concerned about having conversations about how we fund sustainably the kinds of positions that are not historically well funded or even talked about being funded which is not necessarily a new topic from me, given how often we've talked about it personally or how often I've talked about this to other folks. But yeah, I mean, I feel like, and this might be inaccurate information about the other kinds of functions that are funded reasonably well in open source, but it seems like there's pretty good hiring happening in some open source organizations around code and maintenance and the development and DevOps and maybe even now the community side of things, that I think that design is getting better and design in all kinds of different kind of ways. It's great to have heard a number of the projects yesterday say that they were investing in usability improvements. Yeah, I know. I was really pleasantly shocked when a small project that didn't necessarily have paid staff that had some funds were investing that in usability of their tools which is exactly what I want to be hearing. But yeah, still surprising. So the financial stability conversation had a number of different themes. Some folks just getting started about data projects, wanting to understand where they go for funding or like how they even start. And a good number of folks still interested in the sustainability
0: So the second session was on project leadership, decision-making, and succession planning. We've already had Abby in this morning. She's also been on this podcast to talk about succession planning and how that's going. I assume that she also had a role there. Can you tell me how many people were in that one?
2: There were slightly less than the first session, but we still had two different conversations. The two conversations that we had around succession planning, which I participated more actively in as a participant, were how to send money. Which is, if you have it, how do you send it? Really how do you... tough. Really tough.
0: Do you find any solutions like post sticker problem? Where the sticker problem being, I have enough money to buy stickers and shirts, yeah, and not enough to do anything else.
2: Yeah, and from personal experience with the kinds of projects that I'm involved in, it's not just a question about the money, but it's about the processes involved in making decisions. And it's if you don't have any kinds of coherent, cohesive, or agreeable informal decision making structures, then you know, who does make the decisions about what you should invest your funds in, whether your funds are in the tens, the thousands, or the tens of thousands. It sort of becomes really tricky when you've got multiple different things, especially, well, in any project, there are multiple different things that you can invest in. How do you make that decision equitably? And if you don't already understand where you want the project to go collectively, then it's just a very tricky decision.
0: Errol, I'm realizing we're going to have a printout of these things. I'm thinking over your answer to this question, how to invest. But you don't work about that in your day job. So, for Super Bloom, you work on usability studies in general. Can you tell me about what Super Bloom does?
2: I'll definitely talk about Super and what Super Bloom do, does because I should, because we do really cool stuff. Like, our work is fantastic. It's difficult, but anyway, well. Talk about that in a moment. But one of the things I love about Sustain is that it does feel like a space where you can raise those really tricky questions. I don't feel like I have the perfect way to say this statement or say this question, but I need to have it. This is the way that I can articulate it. So it was a really beautifully honest conversation. And a few of us had some suggestions from experiences. And what we ended up kind of circling around conversationally was about how if your space is already occupied by People that are thinking similarly or have similar kinds of experiences. Even if you're doing intense work to bring diverse voices into that space, they're still going to be overwhelmingly outnumbered. Yeah. Is a way of describing that. And one of the things that I tried to do when I was part of the A City Pride Committee. So for the longest time, my local city, Pride Committee was... Bristol. Yes, in Bristol. Bristol, where I said I love that city. Was founded by some truly amazing white, cis, gay men. Fantastic. Have a lot of lovely, again, white, cis, gay men friends that helped out with the committee. This feels like open source. You do a thing, you start a thing, and the people that you are in community with come and help you, right? And it just tends to end up being the kinds of people that are similar to you, which is just human, right? I don't think we necessarily should feel as bad about that as we do because we do that.
0: Trying hard not to take the all the you statements personally as a (laughs) bisexual white man sitting (laughs) over here. So uh, let's go. Let's (laughs) go. No, it's right.
2: So yeah, the conversations were around like the difficult conversation of some of you are going to have to either take a extended break or a permanent leave from this to make space so that it is more equitable and equal, because even if you stick around, unless you're bringing in an equal amount of so from different backgrounds, then the numbers just don't balance.
0: Which is also an issue, of course, in open source.
2: For sure. So that was the experience that we talked about. We came up with a few sort of solutions where it was a little bit of an easing into that, like in a sense of you could create a second equal space that was equal to the community that was a little bit more about a transitionary process out that felt like a little bit more comfortable. But then again, whose comfort are we prioritizing here? It's again, a tricky conversation. It's like, if people don't want to leave, nobody's going to be happy about it. It's incredibly hard to be happy about being asked to leave for very good reasons, but it's complicated stuff.
0: Yeah. It's also difficult to have conversations around, not just leaving, but taking up space. How much space do you take up? What's going on? There's a guest I've wanted to have come on the podcast for a long time who doesn't come on because he feels like there's just too many white men. And it's like, no, I'm good. Just give it to someone else. There's someone else you can interview. And it's like, yeah, that's a fair point. So thinking about this whole conversation, whether sustain gives a space to the inarticulate, not saying that you are articulate, but I'm saying if these questions take mm-hmm. a not necessarily a safe space, but a brave space, a space where you're like you're able to actually sit and think and be like, listen, there's a problem here. I'm trying to figure it out, but there's just too many dicks on the dance floor. How do we solve the problem? Yeah. I'm glad you talked about that conversation. Thank you for sharing about it. Thank you for sharing about your experiences working with the parade in Bristol. Yeah. You did say you wanted to get back to Super Bloom, and we have a few minutes left. So I am curious what you do there.
1: Okay,
2: cool. Yeah. So Super Bloom used to be named Simply Secure. So that might be a more familiar name to people listening. We went through a rebranding. The rebranding process is quite interesting in the sense that it was done as openly within our own community of contributors as possible. So it's been in progress for about four years. You know, these things, you, you think they're going to take a certain amount of time and they end up taking a little bit longer. But what we really wanted to do as an organization, and before I joined Superbloom as a stant employee, uh, I was part of the committee that helped with the rebranding. Cool. So yeah, I, yeah, I've been a long-standing member of Superbloom's mission. You know, uh, it was always really aligned when I was working in other open source organizations on design and designing things. So yeah, it was very much inviting the community into the space of how do you think that this work that we do, which is design usability, working with users and real humans and making sure the tools make the most sense to them as possible within the constraints and abilities that any kind of technology tool would have. But in this case, open source tools often that we work at Superbloom. So yeah, the committee was brought in to, to help define what that should be. One of the reasons we wanted to move away from Simply Secure is we don't necessarily think security is simple.
0: I always kind of thought of Yubiqis. It's like, why am yeah. I you know, dealing with security? What's going on? Yeah.
2: So, yeah. Well, since I've been at Superbloom as an employee, I've worked on some really cool things. I'm really proud to say... I've worked on a really cool project funded by Internews, which was all about, again, security and privacy, open source software tools, and what they wanted to know about design-related topics and kind of creating a series of resources for them, with them, actually, not for them, with them. So that was the cool thing. So it wasn't just, we think that security and privacy, human rights, open source tool teams should do X, Y, and Z. It was a, what do you think about a lot What's really confusing for you? What's mystical about anything to do with users, design process, et cetera? And we had a whole heap of different things that folks wanted Mm
0: -hmm. resources
2: for. And we said, okay, we'll create some things around that. Created a variety of different things and interactive kind of game type thing about user testing and why it's a good thing to do and why you would want to do it. So something that wasn't just... Necessarily, you know, reading a piece of documentation straight up writing had a sort of interactive element to it, and it's a little bit more enjoyable. We hope. Loads of different scripts. So, if you're ready to do user testing with users, here are some snippets of scripts of things that you can just, you know, copy paste. You can add in your own text, how to recruit for users for user testing, where you can do that in the open source space. And then one of the trickiest things is then how to take all that information and synthesize it and understand it and then apply it to your project and kind of prioritize based on that or think about how to bring in the user research into how you're building the tool. And that's essentially what we do at Superbloom as well. So we get a lot of projects come through our thunders, a lot of open source projects. A lot often they're like, we want to build an X, but we want to build an X in the best way possible with these kinds of people. How do we do that? Okay then we'll go talk to those people. We'll gather all that information and work with you to figure out what that can look like both now and also in the future. The thing that I'm working on at the moment, and I think this might be the end of my time, but I'm super stoked about this project that we're funded by the Sloan Foundation to work on, is how design and usability is thought of, practiced, or should be or could be practiced in scientific and research open source software. So this has been my
0: awesome.
2: life. I know this has been my life for the last six months. Is going to lots of different conferences, talking to people that are doing some truly, you know,
0: that's really cool. I want to be in those conversations. Right. <laughs> that's like, awesome.
2: It's the it's an insight that we've gathered from just people working on like stuff to do with measuring the depth of ice caps on moons of. Jupiter, and then people working on sound-based things, yep. and you know, people that are cataloguing plant specimens in labs, and then people working on data to crunch about depression in young kids because that's a medical field. But also, then just like how researchers do their research stuff, like so, how data is processed, how we use those kinds of Python and Jupiter notebooky type things in the research field, and.
0: Oh. Has anyone studying the most Jupyter used Jupyter Notebook?
2: Yeah. Oh, Jupyter Notebook seems to be the consistent standard
0: for <laughs> <process> scientific and <laughs> well, research. I love that. Methods. I love that. I know. Don't do not use the .io names. That's cool. <laughs> yeah,
2: so. But yeah, so that project is currently still in its data collection phase. We've been talking to tons of people about like what their thoughts are. And we're super excited at the end of March to be producing some Recommendations, some stuff, some things that we think are going to help this space in terms of design and usability. So,
0: where could people see those things?
2: Gosh, so you should be able to see those things on our website, superbloom.design. That's probably going to be the best place to find out where that will eventually live. But one of the tricky things is where should it live? Because not everything for communities should live on the organization that creates the thing. Because we're thinking it might be a Jupiter notebook. Because if that's where <laughs> the community is... Make it there. It should be there. But the yeah. place where you can find the info is going to be on Super various communication channels.
0: And where can we learn about your latest D&D exploits?
2: Oh, I almost died in my D&D game last night. So well,
0: I'm that's so glad you're still alive.
2: I'm feeling very vulnerable today. <laughs> it, was, it was touch and go, touch and go for a moment last night.
0: Have it's a rejuvenation the... spell ready.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was so lucky that I got uh, revived anyway. But
0: Mastodon, right?
2: Mastodon, yeah. I'm now on erald.design.hackyderm.
0: Yeah, like, Hackyderm is the consistent standard for open source these days.
2: Yeah, I'm on like, Hackyderm, still using the Twitters, though I don't really want to be using the Twitters much anymore.
0: That's okay. You don't have to say. Yeah. It's fine. And of course, you're always available on sustaining open source design. And then the sustain WX and WX? UX Thanks. and design working group WG.
2: And can I say just the last thing is one of the things that I'd love for the Sustain Design and UX podcast is we would love more people that are not designers or UXers, projects like developers, anybody that doesn't identify as a designer. We'd love more people to come on that podcast and just be like, so these are the things that I think about when I think about design and just kind of Have a chat with us about like...
0: We should do a crossover episode. That would be excellent. Let's do that.
2: Yeah. So if any developers or coders or anybody that isn't a designer is listening and wants to come and just like have a real friendly, casual chat about things they think about design, please.
0: Have we got news for you. Awesome. Errol, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure to see you. Always a pleasure to hear more about what you're getting up to in the world. Good luck with everything, including the PhD, which we didn't talk about at all, which is really for the best. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of today's session. And thank you again. For all you listeners of Sustain, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. As always, you can find this podcast at podcast.sustainos.org You can also check out the discourse at discourse org to talk about all sorts of things. Sustain and this podcast especially, we'll have a thread for it up soon. We are on Twitter. We are on Mastodon. We are around. You can find us where podcasts are made. Please like this podcast in your app of choice if you can. And you can always email me at podcast at And I'll go to all the posts and me. If you have any comments, thoughts, suggestions, please let me know. Thank you so much and good day.